You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Hello. Welcome to She Became Visible. Happy few days before Thanksgiving. I I have the deepest condolences for any of you who are in the process of already making your pies and your rolls and all of the other things that go into preparing Thanksgiving, because I have children who cook and they love cooking. And that is fabulous because the first time we had a family get together for Thanksgiving uh, here at our home in Arizona, I had it all delivered, turkey, dressing, salad, green beans, the whole bit, because that's how I do Thanksgiving. And I feel good about that. I'm okay with that. But I have children who said, mom, let us do it next year. And I was like, that sounds fabulous. So, <laughs> and I have an amazing guest on today. And I think, actually, I think it's the perfect guest for the week before Thanksgiving, because we're going to be talking about the concept of having a mother in heaven. And I think it's one of the things I listened to a discussion from some other podcast people, and they were saying that the belief that there is a mother in heaven as, as well as a father in heaven is kind of unique to the Christian Western religions. And it kind of sets the Latter-day Saints a a little bit apart from typical Western religions. We'll get into that a little bit more with my guest today, but um, it is definitely a unique thought. It's not, we're not worshiping Mary or the mother of Jesus. We're literally putting a deity alongside our father in heaven or God. And, and I do think that's kind of a unique thought. And so we're going to talk today. I'm going to be talking today with MacArthur Krishna. And I met, MacArthur at a restore conference, um, the middle of October. And it was a conference that was put on by an organization called faith matters. And my husband is a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was more than happy to go to this event with him. Um, we happened to be in Utah at the time, so there was no travel involved. And it was really, really a well-done conference, really well done, very well organized, and ran into some friends, and it was really fun. But particularly, I enjoyed MacArthur's presentation, and it was on um, Mother in Heaven. So let me introduce uh, MacArthur to you as soon as I can get my, my uh, this is MacArthur. Now, right there. 
Do you see why I want to go out to lunch with her or perhaps travel to a very unique country with her? I mean, she radiates joy. And let me tell you a little bit about her background. Um, she graduated from BYU with both an undergraduate and master's degree. She co-owned an award-winning ideas marketing firm for a decade until she retired, got married, and moved to India, like we all do, right? I mean, that's just like, of course, that's what you did. <laughs> yeah. Over eight years, she has written 17 books, six co-authored with Bethany Brad Spaulding at Deseret Book, including A Girl's Guide to Heavenly Mother, A Boy's Guide to Heavenly Mother, Along the way, she has coordinated some of the first art featuring women to be hung in the LDS Conference Center, uh, Kathleen Peterson's art from the Girls Who Choose God series, commissioned and curated the first art show focused on Heavenly Mother with artists from around the world. And her own art was selected for the church's international art competition, The Art by Caitlin Connolly from their book, our heavenly family, our earthly families, was the first art portraying Heavenly Mother published at Deseret Book. After its release, the LDS Church purchased a 12 by 8 piece of their permanent collection, and it currently hangs at the Church History Museum on Temple Square. MacArthur believes that unflinching hope, a lot of hours working with friends, and Wi-Fi can change the world. And I think she's absolutely right. And really, really putting the emphasis on uh, uh, time spent with friends. So let me bring on MacArthur and we will um, pursue our topic of conversation today. Hello. Hi, hi. Let me get rid of two of you. That way you don't have to stare. There we go. <laughs> and so, and MacArthur... Thank you for that lovely introduction. I think my old oh. bio used to say that lots of time with friends and bottomless guacamole was the path ah. to change, you know, getting things done. So I might, we might need to swap those. Wi-Fi for you go. guacamole. Wi-Fi for guacamole. You know, that's funny you would say that because last year, um, again, because I do not like to cook, I had a, I had a little home party for a friend of mine that makes, and I don't have one on, which is just sacrilegious, but she makes the most beautiful crystal bracelets. And her, it's from a company called Love 13. And um, she has a lot of uh, spiritual residence that she puts into her bracelets and, and meaning behind them. And so I was just having a home party for her. And so I ordered some food and I had some, you know, a charcuterie board and some taco chips and I ordered the guacamole and they delivered it. And I think MacArthur, I think I had 40 pounds of guacamole. I mean, I was... <laughs> Shoveling it out and sending people home with guacamole. I've never seen so much guacamole in my life. And I love guacamole, but seriously, one person cannot eat that much guacamole, but I love it. I'll give you their name if you need 40 pounds of guacamole. Perfect. I was actually having these like sparkly eyes of like, ooh, I could do ooh, that. How do I get my hands on that? Yeah, yeah. So tell me about, so it sounds as though, was your um, undergraduate and your master's focused on art? Were you primarily focused in the arts? No. no. So my, I mean, tangentially, my undergraduate, my master's degree were in communications, okay. um, which basically opens you up to do just about anything you want to do. Yeah. Um, I think that I had always been a strong visual, like visually oriented person. Right. Um, I remember being 
in elementary school and telling my mom that I wanted to decorate my room. Like I wanted to intentionally curate what was around me in my space. And my mom was on board. Um, But I think from that young age, I had this sense of like certain colors and certain textures that I'm around make me feel certain ways. And I think that that's always been powerful. And then when I was studying in, in college, I was lucky enough to fall in with a group of designers who remain friends to this day. I mean, 30 years later, and they taught me so much about the power of communicating visually. So um, I think it's, it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible avenue for expression. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. And I also think that people, uh, there needs to be more understanding on the difference between like visual learning and emotion and just the the just the ways that the different ways that people do learn and how and different ways that they retain and and I mean I I know that it's a good movie when I have become completely enveloped by the movie and I'm not looking at the mm-hmm. base behind the person's head or I start going that is interesting wallpaper I love that wallpaper <laughs> then I know that I've checked oh, out I'm competing with my yeah. wallpaper today I might be in trouble yeah yeah like when I when I look at the uh, Howard Hughes movie. And um, the whole, you know, Catherine, or, or was it? No, it was the one with, uh, no, it wasn't. It was the one with Catherine Hepburn. She was portraying the golfer. I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, the whole movie was in browns and turquoise. And that's all I remember about the whole movie wow. was all of the clothing. The the There must have been filters because the sky and the grass and the trees <laughs> and everything, you know, it just had a shade of blue and and it was just, it was so amazing. And the other thing, we just went and saw the new Flower Moon movie about the uh, yeah. indigenous, you know, yeah. and and I love the movie, but seriously, three and a half hours later, I was like, I love Robert De Niro's suit. That is a very well-tailored <laughs> suit. And so it's like, I, I clicked out and eventually went to visual learning. But anyway, well, so- Just this morning, I received an email um, where a woman was- writing about her experience um in and how visuals matter to her so Mm -hmm. she is a woman who is biracial she talked about how she has cinnamon skin and frizzy hair that's sometimes voluminous and she said that her mother's polynesian and she looks like her mother's side of the family and what she said in this um this essay this description that you can find on the last she said at substack But what Mm. she was talking about was how much she'd been told that she was welcome. She was told she was welcome. She was told she was God's child. She was told that we should all be in this together. But it Mm -hmm. wasn't until that she opened our book, The Girl's Guide to Heavenly Mother, and she Mm. saw a Hawaiian heavenly mother that she said she literally gasped out loud. She said, for the first time, there was a hole inside of me that was filled. Wow. And I think that's the power of visuals that even though she'd been told her whole life that she was important, she mattered and she'd welcome, she's welcome in the faith that until right. you see that you're welcome and until you have that right. strong mental, you know, visual association with the welcome, it doesn't ring as true. Right. Right. So, and, and that's a, that's a good segue into the conversation because I think what I hear and what from your and, and read from your um, bio is your efforts to make that more possible when it comes to a mother in heaven, that we don't have enough visuals 
that we might have a mention or two, but unless you have a visual, unless you maybe go into the temple and see a painting of God the Father and God the Mother together as heavenly parents, or if you don't see it, then you're, you, I mean, it, it really is hard maybe it's easier for people because like, like we're talk, talking about just as a skill of being able to visualize. I know, like you say, as an interior designer, I can go into a building when, you know, when we're buying a home or something like that. And I can see, oh yeah, I could paint this and we can change out the carpet and we can do this and we can do that. But you know, the real estate people would say how frustrated they were because they would take people into a home and they would say, well, I can't live here. The, you know, the kitchen's green. You're like, you could paint it. <laughs> You know, but but they they honestly can't see it unless you do yeah. a presentation or something like that. Yeah. So if you don't ever see yourself, and I'm sure this will also tie into race, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't Absolutely. see yourself. Uh, when I look back on the 1950s, some of the old movies, oh, like The Help and other of those great movies, and you see the the little um, you know African American little girls with those blonde blue eyed baby dolls that they had. Oh, it just breaks my heart that those were the toys that were yeah. given to them to play with. Yeah. And it's, it's so true. And, you know, I don't think people as in, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, unless you experience as in most things in life, unless you have experienced something, it is hard to understand. Yeah. And I think that um, there's an onus on us to have our visuals, whether they be in manuals or in temples or in meeting houses or lessons, to have our visuals match our doctrine. Yeah. And so I'm actually working on a project right now to do some books on the My Jesus Project to have more expansive images of Jesus. Because mm -hmm. if we believe that Jesus is the God of the earth, then that means that it needs to be accessible to everyone. And we've been promised that the gospel will be taught in your native language. Well, art is a language. And so we want to be able to make sure that as you go around the world, that people have the opportunity to see and experience Jesus in a way that is accessible to them. And of course, just the images we often have are just completely historically wrong. I mean, there's that issue, of course. But there's also, I think, the broader issue that beyond just that Christ was a Middle Eastern man and he's painted not like that. But I think even beyond that is doctrinally accurate, not just historically accurate. And doctrinally accurate means everyone, everyone is a child of God. And having that moment where you get to see yourself in God, I think mm -hmm. is maybe one of the most important moments of your life. If mm -hmm. we are to become gods and goddesses, if we are to become the best version of ourselves, I think the best way to instill that um, commitment to that idea or that effort towards that idea is to plant the seed that they are a child of God. If you know mm -hmm. you're already a child of God, then everything else is just living up to your destiny, right? Mm -hmm. And so understanding that you should be able to see yourself in the image of God, I think is just vitally important. So when mm -hmm. we were doing the girls and the boys guides to Heavenly Mother, we were very intentional about um, throwing the net as wide as we could um, to include people. And frankly, it was a little bit of a wild, wild west rodeo. I mean, we wow. were trying to communicate with artists all over the world. We're trying to communicate um, if, with people who do not speak English as their native language or at all. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. we're working through translators. 
um, trying to just do the logistics of shipping internationally. I mean, there's all sorts of hard things you have to figure out when you're trying to do this sort of project. But then wow. you get an email like you get this morning and you're like, yes, this yeah. is why we did it yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important. In fact, I'm going to let me take off my headphones. I want to go and get something and show you. Okay. So here I go. It's fun. I can see your bright pink flash through the room. I'm back. Okay. Okay. So uh, you probably know this, but in the Portland temple, uh, when you come out of the elevator to go up to the second floor, there's a very large painting that was done by Walter Rain. And it's Mary and Martha and Jesus. And that is probably the only picture that I've ever seen that I was like, mesmerized. Like I could have, you know how you'll see people when they're in a museum and they're sitting on a bench and they're just staring at a picture, yeah. you know, for a long time. Yeah. And that was the way I was because well, I was is, mesmerizing. This, because this is what Jesus looked like in mm, the picture. Mm, mm. He was, he looked Middle Eastern. He looked, um, let me see what, there we go. He mm. looked um, disheveled, you know, mm -hmm. Mary and Martha did not look they didn't have just the beautiful veil coming down. They looked like, you know, there was hair falling in their face and Martha was out doing something and Mary was at, at Jesus's feet as the story mm -hmm. goes. Um, but it just looked more realistic. And it was like, it, it was one of those times when you start, you know, putting things on the shelf and you're like, well, that's not the Jesus that I saw in that other picture, but I feel a tie to this Jesus. Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to read about where Jesus lived and was born and did his, you know, ministry, yeah. then this is the Jesus that I want to see. And, and I think if there would have been more pictures of Jesus like this, then maybe some of the, you know, uh, Zionistic stuff that's going on right now would not be, you know, we wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be nationalist as much. We wouldn't be so, so scared of people from, you know, from other races and looks and things like that, because we would have been more introduced to people of the world. And, and it's, it's really a shame, but Hey, you know what? Times are getting better. It's getting better. And you're one of the people that is making that happen as far as trying to bring mother in heaven to, to a more visual. It, it, art can be damaging. Art can be just as, you know, like you say, the written word can be damaging and the visual arts can be damaging. And mm. I, I think the church is struggling with the thing that they did for so many years with the golden plates, the brass plates and all the 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 interpretation and the and they never showed. And then you go away, a rock and a hat. I've never what we didn't sing about a rock and a hat, you know, and mm. then because of the visuals that we've seen, this is something that's got a lot of people's shelves starting I to think tip super, a little bit. I think it's super interesting because art has so much power. Yeah. I think that we become really attached to the meaning of just a single artist interpretation, right? Yeah. So yeah. I grew up with the Blue Book of Mormon and yeah. all of the Arnold Freeberg paintings that were in there. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing story, actually. There's a woman who um, mortgaged her farm property, or maybe sold. I think she sold her farm property in order to fund the painting of those images. So it was a woman uh -huh. who made those come to be, which is amazing. Yeah. But what was incredible to me is then I was walking through the BYU Museum of Art, and they had an exhibit of Minerva Teichert's work. 
Oh, um, yeah. There's actually an exhibit of Minerva Teichert's work at the Church History Museum on Temple Square. But this was yeah. a few years ago, and they, they had one at BYU. And as I walked through and I saw her images of the Book of Mormon, it blew my mind. Because I realized the stories that really stuck with me, I mean, forevermore, Abinadi will be standing in front of the Jaguars, right? Like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Flipping over the king's soul. I mean, like, that's just yeah. burning my brain is that is how that scene looked, right? That's right. That's exactly. That's what it was. And so to all of a sudden see, one of them struck me in particular, Minerva Tyker chose to paint the wedding scene of when oh. the daughters of Ishmael came and married the sons of Lehi. Now think about this. We talk about the families are the most important thing in our church. We right. talk about the families are the eternal structure of the eternities, right? That that's what's going to be with us forevermore. We talk about who your spouse is, as maybe being the most important decision you make in your life. And right. yet it was not painted in right. the scene in the Blue Book of Mormon. I mean, this no. was a story of a family, Lehi and Sariah and their children, and there were not family scenes. No. And so to all of a sudden see Minerva's choice to paint a wedding and right. to think, oh, I yeah. think I would have placed more emphasis that that had happened if right. there would have been art that showed it happening. Now, obviously, right. you can't show every single thing that happened. Right. Right. The kids Mormon stories try. Yeah. <laughs> It is when you start to pay attention to what art is showing, what it is not showing, right. who it is holding up, where is it um, teaching truth and where is it not? All right. of a sudden it begins to be, you realize you have to pay a lot more attention to the messages that you're inadvertently taking in than right. what you may have first thought, especially right. when you're children, right? Yeah, right. Well, it's funny because... You know, like you say, with those images, with a good old Arnold image, the first time we went to Hawaii and I was kind of introduced to the, the Hawaiian people. And I was and I remember going, oh, that's what Nephi looked like. I mean, these guys were huge. You know, they're we're, we're, we're at a, a luau and they're dancing and they've got the muscles. And I'm like, oh, oh, so that's OK, I got it. And they were all images because that's how Arnold had painted them all, right. you know. And I'm and not so like, sure oh, that's. Yeah. Right. I'm like, mm, I think there was. Well, yeah. I do have to say yeah. when I was a little girl, I had a crush on an Arnold Freeberg skirt. Uh, well, yeah. Women coming out of the waters of Mormon, who's got the coolest belt on you've ever seen. And I yeah. thought to myself, like, ooh, I remember being, yeah. little, being entranced by her skirt. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. I think um, my oldest two daughters have pitch black hair. And when they were little, um, one asked, are all angels blonde? Oh, gosh. Yeah. And I thought, oh, uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and so I actually ended up asking an artist friend of mine to paint a black haired angel. Oh, because I didn't grow up with black hair. No. Um, but when you all of a sudden you begin to realize that they're looking at who are the divine beings that represent God uh, and jobs and they're blonde or yeah. they're male, right? Yeah. My daughters who don't fit that say, wait a second, am I, am yeah. I part of the story? Right. Yeah. So was I, there ever, was there ever a discussion of the color of their skin? Did they ever, did they feel as though that was also a part that they were not white and delightsome did they ever feel that they weren't or 
Um, I would have caught that in the bar. Yeah, they would have. Yeah. So, wine yeah. delights and was never part of yeah. our um, family lexicon. Not a chance. Right. Right. I, I had a friend. It's funny. I had a friend that I that um, I dated a little bit in high school and his father was from India. His mother was from Kentucky. And I remember going over to their house and there was this beautiful paint, a family portrait. And they had like 10 kids. They had a ton of kids. And, you know, and she was in this beautiful gown and, and with the husband standing there and then all of those, one, one little blonde baby sitting on her lap, the youngest child, all of them took more after dad than they did mom. She just had one that looked like her. And it was funny because my daughter, um, her first husband was half Korean. And so her first, her two little girls, the one looks like her, but yet you you look at her and you kind of go, Hispanic? Where, what are we doing here? We're not sure. The, yeah. The other one looks exactly like her father. And unfortunately, her father was killed in a car accident when, when my daughter was pregnant with her. So she's never mm-hmm. met her father, you know, never had any kind of interaction with him. She looks exactly like him. And when I would take them places, people would say, uh, like I remember there was a little kiosk over at the swimming pool and there was a gentleman there that ran the kiosk and he was, um, he was Korean and he, he looked at her and he said, um, well, she's Korean. What is she? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I don't know what to tell you, you know, but it, it's, yeah. it is, it's so important, you know, to, to see yourself in whatever the roles are. And well, unfortunately, we believe that Jesus yeah. is the God of the whole earth. If our heavenly parents are the parents of the whole earth, then yeah. that means, I mean, we learned this in Nephi, that God is no respecter of persons, yeah. right? And so that means there's not one race or visual look that is more righteous or more acceptable or more of worth to God. Right. Um, and I think that um, especially at a time where the world can be more polarized and more fractured for any number of reasons, mm-hmm. that really making sure that that truth is baked in that we are all uh, children of God is vitally important. Do, do you think that 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 runs more into the fact that we're really trying to take this American religion, this colonized British English religion and take it to the world? And if we're going to teach the the principle that that men are like God, where they will someday be a God. They will someday have a, well, I know they don't say that anymore, but in my day, they taught that they would be a God, that there would be other worlds, that this is, if you are a man in in India or you are a man in Africa, then you would have a woman also from Africa and that, you know, that there would be gods and goddesses of other races. And that kind of has, I mean, I haven't really seen that thrown into the whole God idea because like you say, now they're trying to kind of, even like, we're not talking about other worlds now. We're not doing that, you know? Um, so I, I don't know, but that doctrine that, still that, remains, right? That this is how we yeah. believe is returning to live with our heavenly parents mm-hmm. and become exalted beings. I think that the church had to start somewhere yeah. and um, it had to start somewhere where there was enough freedom of religion and enough latitude that it could grow, right? Mm-hmm. There may have been other places in the world that, um, it may have run into problems when it was trying to stretch its wings and it was Mm -hmm. a new kind of fledgling faith. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's an important idea to honor 
that mm -hmm. this is where the space it was decided it came to. And we don't know all the reasons. I mean, I'm making it up when I just said it yeah. needed space to grow. I mean, that's my own yeah. kind of speculation. Right. Um, so I think that we can honor that while being very careful about um, a couple of things. Mm -hmm. One is it's different to honor that than to hold up this as the ideal. Yeah, you're, that's a right? good way And so to say um, that how we do things here in this country of America is mm -hmm. the way to do things is mm -hmm. very problematic. Yeah. I heard this yeah. amazing choir sing. And the gentleman said, I think the way, reason we resonate with this music is because the hosts of heaven sing like this. Mm. And I just started backing up because yeah. the hosts of heaven are not necessarily one type of music. Right? Yeah. You yeah. cannot say that all godly music is in the um, piano, choral. Yeah. Bach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Tchaikovsky. Right. Okay. And again, yeah. beautiful, wonderful things, but they're beautiful to me yeah. because those are the tones that I grew up with. I went to hear a Chinese um, symphony and I had a really hard time because my ears are not tuned to the same scales that that music is tuned to. Does that right. make it less divine? Of course not. Right. right? Of course right. not. Yeah. So I think we have this idea that we need to, I, I think we can honor our heritage and be grateful that um, America was a place with freedom of religion in order for this to take root. And at mm -hmm. the same time, not in any way propagate the idea that the American way of doing things is the godly way to do something. Right. Yeah. yeah. 1960s IBM does not necessarily have to be the look in all countries right. of the world. And recently I was traveling in South Africa and I sat in primary and I looked up at the bulletin board and there wasn't a single picture of a brown child. Oh, wow. And I thought, wow. this is South Africa. I mean, look around this room. This is a complete yeah. room of human beings. So, but yet the art that was hanging on the wall was only reflective of one look of human. Now, is that because it came from correlation and that's where they got it? And or why there why there be other options now? Yeah. Um, especially in like the Friend magazine. The Friend does a great job of showing a much wider range. But I think probably 10 years ago, there was a very limited um possibility to access religious art from the church that did right. not look like would you call it IBM? IBM in the 1960s? Yeah, yeah 1960s IBM. Yeah, right. yeah. So, true. so I think this is definitely changing. Um, the temple guidelines for more art have been sent out, and they specifically talk about a more expansive idea of Jesus. Um, and so when the church as a body has um, a sense of things, then it just takes some time to trickle out, right? It'll take some time to trickle out to the manuals and trickle out to you know, the art department. Um, I do know, for example, that um, Esther Kandari is a fine artist um, who just painted a companion piece to the LDS Come Follow Me Book of Mormon for next year. Mm. Mm. And it's available at Deseret Book and what's or will be in the next week or so. Um, mm -hmm. But what's amazing about this is that those images that are painted in that book are much more... Um, 
reflective of what the people from the Book of Mormon would look like and mm -hmm. a wider range. And so, for example, in this section for Jesus Christ and God, yes, it has images of, of Jesus looking Middle Eastern, but it also shows Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And mm -hmm. so to know that we know the definition of God is Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother together matters when we put up art mm -hmm. on the wall. Are we right. going to show children in primary? Are we going to show children in our Come Follow Me family lessons that that women <laughs> are also yeah. part of the definition of God? Yeah. Do you think that there's a hesitancy to, like, for example, if we, let me see if I, I don't want to, let's see if we can flip this. So this is the gospel doctrine and I, is this going to let me scroll it down? No, it's not. Shame on you. All right. I'm going to do this and see what happens. Okay. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, let me just read it. So this is the this is the gospel topics essay. It came out in October, end of October 2015, which yes. a lot of people might be a little bit like, well, it's about time. But the whole LDS.org essays, I mean, I golly, let's think the two years, three years ago, I said something to my mom about the gospel topics essays. And she says, What are you talking about? That's that's yeah. not true. And I was like, Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but um, so it just basically it's it's one of the shortest uh, of the essays, and they just said the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints teaches that all human beings, male and female, are beloved spirit children of heavenly parents, a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. Now they don't say mothers. We'll talk about that. This understanding is rooted in scriptural and prophetic teachings about the nature of God, our relationship to deity, and the godly potential of men and women. The doctrine of heavenly mother is a cherished and distinctive belief among Latter-day Saints. And that was one of the mm -hmm. things that I was talking about. Well, there is no Here's record of a, we should go just ahead, say that a second, because yeah, yeah. Um, I frequently hear people say one, I frequently hear people say they didn't even know this existed. So yeah. that was yeah. one of the amazing, beautiful things about Elder Renlund speaking about Heavenly Mother in general conference mm -hmm. is that if you're listening in general conference in April of 2022, Elder Renlund said, we have a mother in heaven. This is our doctrine. You can find our doctrine on it in the gospel topics essay. Right. And so um, I think there are a lot of people who did not realize those essays existed or that this was something that was officially embraced or that we could talk right. about. So right. back in the 1960s, there was a California seminary teacher who started, we don't know who said it first, but the California seminary teacher was the person who started propagating the idea that Heavenly Mother was too sacred to talk about. Mm -hmm. And Heavenly Father was protecting her somehow that um, that there needed to be a silence around her if we were to be respectful. So that was not doctrine. No prophet right. or apostle had ever stated that that was correct, but it just mm -hmm. kind of took root and grew and became this thing that lots and lots of us, especially at our age, were raised with this sense that Heavenly Mother was taboo. To the mm -hmm. point once where I was actually giving a fireside and a woman said, I can't feel the spirit when we're talking about Heavenly Mother. Yeah. Which was so tragic because she's your mother and she's a right. god. And so right. why would you not feel the spirit when we're discussing truth? Right? Right. Right. So I think a lot of people carry that for a long time. And so to have Elder Renlund say, here's where you can find what our doctrine is. So the first thing I hear is, you know, often they don't know the essays exist or two that we shouldn't talk about her. Then three, I often hear there's so little information like this, mm -hmm. this um, essay is so short. And that makes me laugh every time because there's a couple mm -hmm. of things that I think are really important. One, there's a whole bunch of footnotes. 
So if you look to the footnotes, I mean, there's like 15 footnotes and one of them is a 20 page paper with 600 references to Heavenly Mother. If you mm -hmm. want to dig into it, my co-author um, from the Cherish book. So we did a book, um, we can talk about this, but we did a book called Cherish where we collected people's ideas and experiences and testimonies on Heavenly Mother. It's incredibly beautiful. We decided to do this book because my brain should not be the repository of all these incredible spiritual experiences. Um, but one of my co-authors of that book, um, Trina Caudill, decided to spend a year studying in-depth the Gospel Topics essay of Heavenly Mother. And she said it took her almost the whole year to go through all of the primary sources on those things. And so when we talk about there's not a lot, I think we should kind of because we're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's really important about that is that we're a line upon line kind of people right? That we need some information and then we need to practice it. And then we get some more information and then we need to practice it, right? Like God doesn't just throw us into the deep end and say, live with it, right? Right. <laughs> time we're taught a little bit here, a little bit there. And frankly, if we followed all of the things that are in the current um, doctrine of the gospel topics essay, it would revolutionize. It would revolutionize mm -hmm. our world. It would revolutionize our families. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot that we need to do um, to live up to the doctrine that's in the gospel topics essay before we even think about what else we need to know. What do you think is, I mean, and if you go through, like you say, the footnotes, is it more or less that there is a heavenly mother mentioned or do you feel, I mean, do you feel like just mentioning or saying or declaring that there is a heavenly mother is the same as explaining who she is, what she did, what part she plays in the Godhead is because yeah. I, I mean, I've heard other people say that it's like, well, she was mentioned, you know, 350 times or 400 times. And I'm like, but are, is mentioning that we have a heavenly mother, the same as clarifying what her role is yeah, as a goddess. Of course, of course those are different. Um, yeah. I would say out of all the footnotes, the most robust is the footnote that is the BYU studies article. It's called a mother there. If you Google a mother there, BYU, it will immediately mm -hmm. pop up. It's a 20 page okay. document. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Plato and Dr. Paulson went through um, mm -hmm. with assistance from others, Rachel um, Steinblick and some other graduate students mm -hmm. went through and catalog, not a comprehensive, but a thorough um, mm -hmm. collection of all the times that Heavenly Mother, as you said, was mentioned. But right. what's interesting is they took those 600 different mentions and they parsed them into really um, accessible subcategories. And so mm -hmm. they break it down and say, here's what we know about this role. Here's what we know mm -hmm. about this role. Here's what we know about this. And they group all the information in a way that makes it comprehensible um, mm -hmm. for someone to go through and understand the different pieces. Mm -hmm. I also say we actually don't know a lot about Heavenly Father either. Yeah. Well, so, except you know, he's our as far as like the creation or th or things like that go, or what what his role is. As so think about a, like we we don't know a lot, right? So we know that he and Jesus appeared to Joseph Smith. We know that he is our father. We know that he and the mother together planned the plan of salvation. In fact, that's one of the lines in the Gospel Topics essay. It says, mm -hmm. "Our heavenly parents designed together designed the plan of salvation." Mm -hmm. Um, so, so far what we know about Heavenly Father, we also know about Heavenly Mother. Okay. Mm -hmm. She didn't appear to Joseph Smith, but we know that she is a parent, that she loves us, that she was part of the plan. Right. And so in my mind, 
I think because we talk about Heavenly Mother, Heavenly Father more often, we somehow feel like we know more. But yeah. I still think we actually don't know that much on that front either. Yeah. One of the things the Gospel Topics essay says and clarifies, and this is vitally important, it talks about Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother working side by side. Right. Now, the world hands us a very different model than men and women working side by side as equals. That is, the worldly model on this is not that. Mm -hmm. So to have the Gospel Topics essay say, they work together for the salvation of the children. They work side by side, that they are a pattern for their children to me is so important because we got handed a world where patriarchy determines how our world functions. Mm -hmm. And that is not godlike. Well, that's like, what I was going to say was like, when you, when you talk about side by side, then unfortunately my generation, you know, immediately goes to, a mother in Zion, Ezra Taft Benson talk in 1987, where he specifically describes you are working side by side, but let me tell you what your role is. Your role is to be a mother in Zion and your role is to be a provider and to preside in your home. And, and I think so, you know, and so that is what I think sometimes people then take that and say, well, if we're going to copy that, then that will be the eternal role that was given to us in the next life. And, you know, um, and that's where a lot of people go side by side is not that narrowly defined one. Yeah. Um, I work with my husband in his business. Right. Yeah. And but so I mean, side by side defined by who? That would be my question. Well, I would say defined by God. So, but, but whose God, interpretation God. is side by side? That's the problem, right? You like your, your interpretation. No, no, this is not my interpretation. This is me going okay. to God, saying my prayers and saying, how should I spend my life and time and energy? This is how I like to do it, right? Like this is what makes sense to me in my world. This is how I want to do this. Does this work for you? Is this pleasing in your sight? Mm -hmm. And so Camille Johnson, our General Relief Society president, has recently said, how you arrange your life is between you and God. Mm -hmm. So she was the owner, founder, president of a law firm, her own law firm. Right. And right. she is now the general relief society leader. Right. So let's not assign any level of righteousness to one style of side by side. Right. right. I think what's important. But do you feel, can you acknowledge that there is a reason why that style was authorized and then so-called the, you know, the famous word, so-called whatever, come home from your, you know, come home to your homes that was given to my generation, you know, don't go into the office, leave your typewriters, come home to your, to your family, this is where you belong, was the gospel doctrine that was taught over the pulpit in conference to my generation. Well, it's also be very clear you know, that over time, what is taught changes. This is the point. But when did it get authorizedly changed? When did they stand up and say, we are sorry that we said that. We now have a Relief Society primary presidency that is a lawyer. She has only three children. She doesn't have 10. Um, but we changed our minds. It's now okay to go back to your typewriters or go back to your, you know, and leave so the home. Here's, here's when is that made clear is well, what I'm on. saying. Here's right. And here's what I'm taking issue with. I don't need it to be made clear. Oh, it is not. Okay. No, I'm, I'm serious. It is not the church's responsibility to moderate my relationship with God. 
Okay. The church is here to support all the ways that I need to become more Christ-like. But there, and I, I mean, so it's also depends on how you use the word church. I like to use the word church that I'm in the church. But if right. we're talking about manuals and policies and procedures, whatever, it is not the church's role to tell me how to live my life. That is truly 100% between me and God. And if I, I, I support believe- that, I don't know if I believe that, but I, I mean, I, I believe it for you. I don't know if that's a if that's a, a gospel principle, but I believe that that's well. We're born. With I agency. believe that that is the correct way to do it. I so don't one, know if that's we're born with what's agency. Taught. And if we were not born yeah. with agency, then we would have all been in Pleasantville, you know, with all living cookie cutter lives. But one, we were given right. agency. The cookie cutter life was Lucifer's plan. So mm-hmm. one, we're given agency. Two, we're given the right to have personal revelation about our life. That is one hundred percent me deciding: should I go to graduate school? I don't go and talk to my bishop about that decision. But I don't, do you know people that did or have? Go to God. God. But do you know people that did go to the bishop and ask uh, if that I was okay? So. You those know? are my friends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then that's, 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 I think, the glory of being the able to find like, a I tribe. I don't hold a grudge about the fact that things evolve. Things evolve. Things change. So the things that I'm saying now or the things like, okay, so think about this. Mm, 20 years ago, when I was getting my master's degree, I was not thinking one bit about writing books or about expansive art. I wasn't thinking about having children that had black hair, right? Like none of those things were on my horizon as an individual. So I don't hold a grudge that people through time evolve. And people are who make up an organization. So as people evolve, then organizations evolve. Mm -hmm. And I want to have the graciousness to have other people let me evolve, right? Like, let me evolve. Let me learn more. Let me become better and more understanding and more loving and more welcoming. Like, let me evolve. And at the same time, let me let institutions evolve. Because here's the thing, as we make these statements as if it's, um, something our church, quote unquote, mm-hmm. are the only people who talk this way, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So I would say even recently there was some um, there's some flurry about some financial decision decisions that the church made, mm-hmm. and and I think we do need to be accountable for our financial decisions. But I also heard this and started to laugh because I was involved in a project about ten years ago about corporate um, transparency. And the concept that more than 10 years ago, that someone had the right to know whether or not your supply chain was environmentally friendly, whether Mm -hmm. or not your supply chain involved child labor, I would Mm -hmm. say 15 years ago, for sure 20, that was not at all on the table. Mm -hmm. Nike, Adidas, Pepsi, Coke, none of these big corporations ever needed to come to the table and say, yes or no, do you involve children in, in producing your things? Like that was never asked of them. Right. It's the culture that we have said that we as consumers of these items, we as stakeholders in this process have the right to know transparently what's going on with this. This mm-hmm. is a very recent idea in corporate governance. Yeah. And, and the, the the thing with that though, like I agree with you because you know, my we had a family foundation and it was very clear legally I was not responsible to 
I could do whatever I wanted to with the donations that were made. Once the donations were made to our, you know, nonprofit, then I could legally, there were rules of what I could do and what I couldn't do. I I can't go buy a new car or whatever, but that you couldn't say, I will give you this money if you buy this particular car for this particular family. I would say, well, you can't stipulate that if you're going to make this donation. So I understood that. But my other problem was the difference between church and state. And, you know, whenever they whenever they compare the church to a corporation, which we know it's a corporation, but to compare it to ethically a corporation and say, well, this, you know, Coca-Cola does that. So I don't know why you're complaining that the church does that. No, like, no, no. I'm not saying we, it's a I'm church, not saying, you know, I'm not yeah. saying we hold ourselves to a low bar. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. But what I'm saying, we as a world did not have the consciousness of culpability, transparency, of the damage that can be done by a corporation. Like we collectively, that was not in our conscience. So I'm giving other examples to say these corporations are an example of how what it, it wasn't in anybody's conscience. This was just not how it functioned. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right? So I'm not but saying I don't, yeah, I don't. like if they do, we can do it. That's not what I mean. I'm saying yeah. we as a world have a different consciousness than what we had 10 or 20 years ago. And as we let human beings evolve, then those human beings will evolve in how they treat one another. They'll evolve in how they make policies. They'll evolve what books are written. I don't know if you've ever gone back and read, but I went back and read some of the children's books that I read as a kid. And I was like, oh, oh my. Um, Just Dick and Jane. (laughs) Yeah. Well, go back and watch Bewitch. Go go back and watch a few TV shows. Um, It's kind of like, oh, you know. Genie and bottle problem. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think yeah. no culturally can... patriarchy was definitely, you know, right there. So completely no, culturally accepted. it was there. Completely accepted. Yeah. yeah. And so I think having this understanding that and, and kind of grace, because I want grace for me. Right. I am willing to show grace for others that mm-hmm. their understanding and their consciousness was built in a different time and a different framework. And I'm sure they yeah. evolved from where they were before. Right. I'd also say, so Bethy and I just did a book called in their image in the image Mm -hmm. of our heavenly parents, how to create a more celestial marriage. You can get it on um, Amazon. And we did that book because we were super interested in how to have a really healthy marriage. Like Mm -hmm. if what we believe is the eternal structure of things. So the church, and I don't mean church, the people, I mean, church like mm-hmm. manuals and, you know, procedures and policies. Yeah, correlated immaterial. Yeah. Right. Those are scaffolding. That's what they've been lay. That's what they've been labeled by prophets. And scaffolding is necessary to build something, but it's not the thing. It's not the mm-hmm. eternal structure. We actually think families are eternal structure. So if I'm going to spend my time and energy working on something, I'm going to spend my time and energy working on eternal structures. So Bethy mm-hmm. and I were interested in how do you build the most celestial marriage you can. What does that look like? And so we pulled in four different LDS therapists and said, talk to us about over 30 years of practice. What have you seen that's damaging to a marriage? What have you seen that's healthy mm-hmm. for marriage? How do you cultivate mm-hmm. a healthy marriage? And what was amazing mm-hmm. to me is I think of myself as a very um, independent, confident person. I would have thought of myself as a partner to my husband. I mean, we even work mm-hmm. in the business together. But mm-hmm. Turns out when I went through the checklist that the therapist laid down, I was not. I was not functioning. Really? Really. Did did you talk about that with your husband? And was he aware of that? Did he did he kind of go, 
Yeah, I was thinking that myself, but I was afraid to say it or anything. Like that, or, you know. I think, um, no, because my husband lives in a totally different place of consciousness, right? So he yeah, brings to the table yeah. a completely different set of expectations. Yeah. yeah. But I think what's important about that is when she and I were going through and doing that book, we found that after 1995, when the church did the proclamation on their family, mm-hmm. when it said husbands and wives are co-equals, when Elder Ballard said there's not a president and a vice president in a marriage, uh-huh. like I was raised with godly parents who right. told me that my father was the president and that my mother was the vice president and we as the children were the board of directors and they're uh-huh. following the model that they had been taught. Right, right. What's awesome yeah. is after 1995, they turned around and restructured their marriage. Mm. So as we have a changing consciousness, as God trusts us with more information and more truths, we as a people get to decide, as a people and as an individual, get to decide if we're going to embrace it. So my parents embrace this and now function as equals. As partners. Do you feel as though there's a problem in the supply chain as far as getting information out? Like you say, that some people are enlightened enough to recognize the differences or recognize the change in doctrine and can implement it. But then you have other people, you know, they talk about bishopric roulette or, you know, you have a, we had a bishop when we lived in a small town in Oregon. And, and um, I mean, I think this guy was born and raised in this small town. And so, you know, being a bishop to him was the highlight of his life. It's the most power he's ever had in his life. And he was just old school. And so he was running that ward you know, like 1963. And so they talk about Bishop Roulette. Do you think that there might be a better way if you're going to do line upon line and revelation and changing in doctrine, that there might be a better way so that everybody understands that wearing denim to church is not illegal? You know, that, you know, when you talk so, about things like that, then get out. Yeah, you know? there's a couple of challenges here. One is, for example, Elder Renlin spoke of Heavenly Mother in General Conference. That is about as public as you could, that is not even about, that is as public and as defining as what we ever get in our doctrine. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. not a letter that goes out to the bishops or may or may not be read over the pulpit. This is not something that goes on social media in only English so no one in Spanish gets it. This was a general Mm -hmm. conference talk. Mm -hmm. And still, I talk to people almost every day, at least every week, that say, oh, we're not supposed to talk about her. Yeah. I'm like, that is not true. We just talked about it over the pulpit in general conference. That is not true. Yeah. And so I think. Did you that think like- that when Brother Renlin mentioned speculating or when you've been given the knowledge that you've been given, it needs to stop. And if you continually ask, if you continually pray about it, you know, well, that's what I was saying. So where yes, do you go with that? Here. So we're talking yeah. about how you disseminate information, right? Yeah. Like, how do we make sure that people understand things? One even if the same message is spoken in general conference, people are coming to the yep. table gonna, with their yep. 100% context. Right. So they're going to hear or not hear depending on their context. Right. And we're talking about, I mean, my sister and I have differences of opinion and we were raised in the same household by the same parents, Absolutely. the same yeah. socioeconomics and the same country. Right. So think about how things are taken or understood in a global context. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, yeah. so I lived in rural India for eight years, like, trying to explain things in a global context is remarkably difficult trying to understand how to do something. So for example, ready? I needed a table built for our dining room. And the way you get tea, the way you get 
Um, furniture made is in India is you hire a carpenter. They don't have so much ready-made furniture. You literally hire a carpenter to come to your house and build what you need to have built. Mm -hmm. So I printed out a table from the internet that I liked. And then I went in and I changed and I drew on the legs how I wanted them to be done differently. I wanted them mm -hmm. you know, a different um, curve than what they were in the picture. But I labeled one on the side and one on the end so that you could see that's what I had in mind. Mm -hmm. When the table was built and delivered to my house, two of the legs had the curve and the other two did not. Oh my gosh. Because they couldn't see be behind the drawing. They didn't see those two legs. Yeah, there was just that assumption. And it that these... all four legs. They're doing exactly yeah. what I told them. Those <laughs> yeah. two legs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. here's the thing is, even when we think we're being very clear, I mean, there was a talk just given, a training session, and I'm, oh, I can't believe I'm spacing his name. Elder, he just said that being a racist was a sin, Mm -hmm. And that when we are talked about in our temple interview about whether or not we hold any opinions or are part of any groups that are contrary to the church, that mm -hmm. if we are racist, we are being contrary to the church. Mm -hmm. He was completely clear. Mm -hmm. Do we think that's going to resolve racism overnight in the next mm -hmm. 10 minutes? Like, of right. course, like right. people bring to the table all of their foibles. Mm -hmm. But here's what gives me hope. Okay. I was sitting in Sunday school. I love going to Sunday school. My ward, my teacher is a rock star. Mm -hmm. And she all of a sudden brought up this idea that made my brain just go, doing, which I love. Mm -hmm. She said, after, Je after Jesus healed one of the lepers, he sent him back to the synagogue to be certified. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what? what? That makes no sense. Like, this is the God <laughs> and the most powerful being on the earth. And he knows that he's clean. He knows that he's healed his leprosy. Why is Jesus sending him back to the synagogue to get like, dunk, stamp of approval? That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Like, that's mm -hmm. irrelevant, right? Mm -hmm. Except Jesus knew that cured leper needed to live in community. Right. And in living in community, he needed the synagogue to sign off on him right. because that was the stamp of acceptability to the community. Right. And once she was talking about this and it hit my brain and I thought, if Christ is willing to work within human systems, they're inherently irrelevant and flawed. Christ worked within the system. Christ mm -hmm. acknowledged that human beings weren't just going to flip a switch with what he knew was the correct thing. Why mm -hmm. would I think that I should not be willing to work within systems too? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of principles here that at least when I'm going about my work, one, I think grace, I want people to give me grace. So I'm going to try to give others grace, mm -hmm. right? Two, mm -hmm. Jesus was willing to work within our flawed human systems. And so when I expect humans to do better, or to change faster, or to be the way I want them to be, right? I have this dose mm -hmm. of humility to say, human systems are inherently flawed, and yet Christ knew how important it was to live in community together and to figure mm -hmm. out how to be faithful together. And frankly, that's a lot harder game. Like, yeah, it's yeah. Well, especially, yeah, especially in multicultural countries like ours 
What, what, how do you, I mean, how do you recommend even in just within my own family? Think about it. Like yeah, my yeah. really wide differences of opinion. If I never spoke to any of them, I'd be much more peaceful. <laughs> oh, but, Thanksgiving's coming up. That'll be fun. <laughs> right, give me any of the growth or any of the opportunities to love or any of the chance yeah. to be humble or any of the chance to quit otherizing people. Like we love to be like the other, the other. Yeah based on yeah. how they look or how they vote or how they think or whether or not they wear denim to church. Right. But yeah. this opportunity to live in unity demands patience. Right. right. How, how much patience do you give though? I mean, do you feel frustrated? Like I remember hearing Margaret Chistano say so one time to me, well, well, I would hope. Well, but that's, I mean, when you, when you go into things like, let's say blacks in the priesthood, 150 years, now we're talking about women uh, having more authority positions or things like that. Are we willing to go 150 more years? Are we, you know, at what point do the masses go, you know, we've just lost an apostle. There needs to be a, a space filled. Wouldn't it be nice to have a beautiful woman accepted into the apostleship? Wouldn't that be nice? And, you know, I remember listening to Margaret say, you know, what if there has been a revelation? What if there has been people praying like they did for the blacks in the priesthood and they were praying and they were praying and they were praying and they had received personal revelation that we needed to let this band go, but the authorities were not doing it. But, you know, what if that's already been done as far as like women in authority, uh, even priesthood recognizing separate but equal responsibilities that priesthood doesn't have to be just one thing. It could be many things of responsibility. And it's like, at what point do you say, okay, I will give you space, but if you're abused, let's just, I mean, that's a huge jump. But if you're, if you're be doing something that's harmful to people, how much time do we say, please stop doing that? That's harmful to people. You go, well, give her time. In maybe 20 or 30 years, she'll stop doing these harmful things and we'll give her grace. So at what point do you go, we need to knock this off and it needs to become a little bit, we need to talk about it more. We need to have pictures in the churches and everything else with mother in heaven. And, you know, that's my, that's my question. And then I also feel like you gave this amazing presentation and there was, you know, Fiona Gibbons who I don't really know the truth. I don't know if anybody really knows the truth, why she stepped down from her position at Maxwell Institute. But, you know, you have other people like Margaret Toscano and, you know, Janice Allred and all these other people that were punished for speaking the way you did at the Restore Conference. We evolve. You know, yeah. But do you feel as though anything was changed? Like if there's like the undercurrent that we know is like, oh, you know, MacArthur can talk like that now because of them recognizing the harm that they did. But do we recognize the harm that they did? Okay, you got like 20 questions in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So one is, I'm very... Like how much time? That was the first one, yeah. Well... The first question. Right, and I would say... Um, you don't stay in abusive situations. Mm -hmm. If you're in an abusive marriage, you get out. If mm -hmm. someone is abusing your children, you get out. So I want to draw mm -hmm. a line between abuse and just uncomfortable, right? And yeah. it can be very uncomfortable, but there's there's still a leap there between discomfort and abuse, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Two, I'm very aware of my stewardship. 
So I am a person who, if I see that I'd like to have something different, then I do something about it. Mm-hmm. So I realized um, Bethany, my co-author, her daughter picked up a cartoon book of scriptures from the Bible and realized there wasn't a single story of a woman in the book. <laughs> and we're like, wait, what? How is that even possible? Like there's plenty of women in the Bible. And so my co-author Bethany went around and the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Methodists and the Presbyterians, no one had a book of women in the scriptures for children. No. It wasn't just LDS. Yeah. It did yeah. not exist. Yeah. So here we are 10 years later and there's dozens of them. If you get online now, there's Divine Daughter and there's the scripture women and there's, I mean, like there's not just in the LDS faith, but others as well. So think about that. For how many years of Christianity <laughs> did we not have a child? I mean, first of all, children's books didn't start to like the early 1900s. So for a long time, we had nothing addressed, right? And then we have the concept of a children's books come. And then for mm-hmm. another 70, 80 years, no one thought, oh, maybe girls and boys should read about women in the scriptures, mm-hmm. right? And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden it hits consciousness and Bethy and I write a book on this and now there's dozens. So mm-hmm. what's fabulous about that is like when things hit the consciousness and you decide to do something about them, the world can change. Yeah. For instance, when we started our girl's guide to Heavenly Mother and I needed images of Heavenly Mother, I found five. There may have been others, but the ones I found from LDS are five. Mm-hmm. Now they just released a, an academic paper where they're cataloging and there was over 500. Mm. So when something hits the consciousness, then it grows and it changes and it um, enlightens us, right? But we mm-hmm. can go a really long time without yeah. that sort of enlightenment. In fact, yeah. I'd read this fascinating book that said the concept of headship, of like the man is the head, mm-hmm. right? Jesus is the head of the church, man is the head of families and women, that that came with Martin Luther back in the 1500s. Mm-hmm. So that idea got established 300 years before Joseph Smith stepped onto earth, right? So when you have an idea that is baked in, it takes a while to unbake. So for me, I feel very clear that I can kvetch mm-hmm. or I can work. And yeah. I choose to work. I choose to build what I believe in. I choose to create the church with me in it. We mm-hmm. as people are the church. So when we're talking about what the church is doing, sure, there's administration and the manuals and the policies, but we as the people are the church. And so Mm. how do we want our church to be? And so I think that there's so much possibility and excitement in the opportunity to build what we want it to be. So if we want our ward to be more welcoming, if we want our ward to be more inclusive, if we want our ward Mm. to be more charitable, what are we doing? Yeah. So what, so how did you, so then answer the question, did you feel as though you were free to give your presentation because of the people that came before you that were excommunicated? I mean, none of us, there are very few people who do something in this world that's not predicated upon somebody else. Right. Right. I mean, uh, Steve Jobs created all sorts of innovative technology that computer code still had to exist before he could create it. So he may have had these amazing ideas, but he still had yeah. to have 
code written by other people that invented these things, right? Yeah, so of course, yeah. I fully recognize with humility the shoulders I stand on of, of women who came before me. But I would mm -hmm. also say we're at a very different time. And the fact that once upon a time women were mourning this feels really tragic to me. But it also feels like a different time, like we've evolved. Yeah. Right. And I choose now to be joyous. This is joyous. The fact that we have a mother, the fact that we have perfect parents who love us, the fact that I can say to my neighbor when my neighbor was just talking about her difficulty in her faith and um, how uncomfortable it was for her and her faith to be a woman. And I said, yeah, I, I get that. But then yeah. I said, you know what the best part about my faith is, is I have a mother in heaven. Yeah. And that is such a powerfully guiding vision for me as a female that I can't overstate the importance of that doctrine in my life. Yeah. So while I fully acknowledge that, that there were line upon line and that I um, am able to be where I am because of others' work and sacrifice, I also firmly believe that we have the opportunity now to live this doctrine in joy. Do, do you feel as though you have, like, for example, I was watching a thing the other day. Um, it was a dialogue and it was a, a like kind of like a fireside that was in someone's private home. And they asked one of the ladies there to give the opening prayer. And so she said, you know, dear heavenly parents. And I thought, well, that's nice that you can feel comfortable in doing that. But you you are not allowed to do that in a community setting. You couldn't do that in sacrament meeting. You couldn't do that at conference. You are not allowed to address, we've been told, Heavenly Mother. So that's nice that you feel that way, but it still hasn't been sanctioned. Even though they changed the young women's things, you know, now we're daughters of our Heavenly Parents instead of Heavenly you know, Father, they changed that. Um, so I have I'm to still not quite sure, but, but I'm my just saying, husband, how do you feel about that? My husband thinks this is really funny. So um, he is not Christian, does not come from our background faith. And he said, what is the Christian's obsession with prayer? You know, <laughs> I might be right with him there on that one. What? I said, I might be there right there with him. <laughs> yeah. But he said, like, God is infinite, mm -hmm. which means there are infinite touch points. Mm -hmm. So you're getting hung up, your faith is getting hung up on one avenue. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about this, we are told to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? That this is, in fact, our current prophet has re-emphasized that Christ is the center of our faith. Mm -hmm. But yet our prayers do not address Christ. No, just end in the name of Jesus Christ. But yeah. Right. But they don't yeah. address him. We're not talking to him. Right, right. But yet we're yeah. to have a relationship with him. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Right? And I think on top of that, like my co-author, um, Bethany, loves to cook. If mm -hmm. you go to her house at any given moment, there is literally like flour hanging in the air because something <laughs> is like being constant, food, right? constantly, yeah. right? Yeah. And I am like you. And I step into a kitchen and I literally feel like I'm entering Dante's Inferno. And it's just a matter of like what level of Hades exactly. I'm going to have to get into to exactly. like get again. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And 
but I feel divine. And so Bethany talks about all the time that she feels divine when she's cooking. Yeah. That yeah. she feels like she's being abundant and she's providing for her family and she is being creative and she loves yeah. that feeling. So she says, I feel like a heavenly mother when I'm taking care of my family. And yeah. I've never once had that in a kitchen. Yeah. 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 But, Not in the yeah, kitchen. Yeah. Art, right. And I work with yeah. color and line and form. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in those, I can literally feel, even saying those words, I can feel a little tingle. I yeah. feel a little tingle. They're like, ooh, I get to think yeah. and do this, right? Yeah. And so yeah. from my standpoint, she is our mother and loves us. Yeah. And whatever way that knowledge and that relationship can bless our lives is good. Yeah. In yeah. fact, I have to tell you this. I told the story at Restore, but... I'll tell, tell it here again because it's worth telling. Um, and then speaking of mother responsibilities, I got to go pick up kids from school. Yeah, um, perfect. Yeah. So one of the reasons we decided to do the Cherish book was because all these stories were coming to my head. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I cannot I cannot be the keeper. Um, but one of them that put me over the edge was a woman I met in Brooklyn. And she was talking about how she had been actively praying to understand how to be more loving to people different than her. Mm -hmm. That was what her goal was. Mm -hmm. And then she was standing in Walmart of Rexburg, Idaho. And all of a sudden she had this rising awareness of every person in the room. She said, I could feel hundreds of people in this big building. I had this awareness of all these people around me. And there's mm -hmm. a guy in the back corner buying a gun. And a woman over there trying to get her grocery shopping done and a child mm -hmm. having a meltdown. But she said, I was awareness mm -hmm. of all these people. And with that awareness came this rising tide of love. Mm. So much love that she felt like she needed to fall over. She was overwhelmed. Right, and right. And a voice came to her and said, now you know a very small portion of the love I have for these, my children as yeah. their mother. Yeah. And so when I think about that, I think our heavenly mother is a God. Yeah. And there's nothing that can get between God and us unless right. we love. Well, and that, that ties in and I, and I will, I will, will put the, pull this to an end, but it ties in very much to where I'm, as you are, I'm blessed with a husband who thinks of me as an equal and we work together as partners. And there's been so many times when I'll say, you know, oh, didn't, did you not see the look on his face? That's, that's not, you know, he goes, no, I didn't, you know, or for example, we have a grandson that's been living on the East coast and, and he decided he's got, he's going to come back. He's going to drive back to Washington state. And I said, you're not driving back to Washington state. Both my husband and my son were like, all right, dude, let us know when you're leaving. Well, you know, and I'm like, absolutely not. That is not happening. He's barely 21 years old. It's now November and, you know, and he is not driving across country We're we will get him back somewhere else. And both my husband and my father or, and my husband and my son were like, okay, you know, but that's the importance of the mother and the father and the traits that the mother has and the traits that the father have. And if, if people can just 
you know, if, if this doctrine can somehow get down from what you did, there were enough men that were in that audience and there were about 1500 at least because there was over 3,500 people that attended that conference. So we know that there was at least 1500 men that heard that. And then that can go down and that can, you know, and it's just going to dribble down to their sons and their sons and their sons. And so maybe, you know, there's some changes that can be made. And just in closing, I wanted to just show you, show you this little clip because I think this is so cool. Let's just talk about this building. Whenever there's a break, if you look over to your side and you see the line for the women's restroom versus the line for the men's restroom, that is the definition of lopsided building. That's right. And I just had to show you this. This was the line at the Restore Conference for the men's bathroom. And I'm like, there is a God. There is a heavenly mother because those guys were standing in line just like we were. And, and then we went to the, uh, uh, the, uh, the World Series baseball game and there were just as many men standing in line. And my husband was like, man, I'm going to go down there and see if I can find another bathroom. I'm like, welcome to my world. But, you know, you made so many good points. I wish we had more time to go through them. You talked about the, the mother that had the nine children and how she had devoted her life and how she loved it, but she had not given herself time to develop any of her own personal talents and she probably talents. Yeah. Her God given talents. And, and I, and there's another podcaster that I listen to and she's a, she works with people with their spirituality. And she talked about how she had a 60 year old woman that just said, you know, I, I love my life and I'm not complaining, but I feel like I've given so much of my life away and I don't know where to start now at this age. And so that's the, you know, that's the problem with that, you know, that I feel like if you get, if you have, you know, like space, if you're giving space, but doctrine that was hurtful to people who maybe didn't feel like they had the freedom to practice their own God-given talents because of old doctrine that was taught, you know, but thank heavens we have people like you that are encouraging more independence, more individual thought, and more, like you say, self-inspiration in spite of what David Bednar says. We do have personal revelation. We can, we do have a personal choice and we can do things that we feel inspired to do. And so I just loved your words and I thought it was very helpful. And hopefully, like you say, you have the, um, the book to little boys about, you know, being introduced to, and hopefully those will go out at Christmas time. And so just as we're leaving, well, say, tell everybody like, how to um, get your stuff. Sure. So all of our, um, you can stuff on Amazon or at Deseret Book, Girls Who Choose God um, series, um, Girls Guide to Heavenly Mother, Boys Guide to Heavenly Mother, Earthly Families, Heavenly Families, In the Image of Our Heavenly Parents, More divide, more Celestial Marriages. There's there's lots. You can look at my name. But okay. So if they're not LDS, they can get those on Amazon. Yeah, they're all on Amazon okay. too. But okay. here's something that struck me as you were talking. So we actually first did the Girls Guide to Heavenly Mother. And then an artist who has five sons got a hold of me and said, please, please make this for boys too. Please, yeah. can you make this the children's guide? And I said, no, we're going to talk about like hips and wombs and stuff. Like I'm not putting that in the boys. I'm not putting this into a children's book, right? Yeah. And I said, but you can send me an email and tell me what, why this matters to you. Mm -hmm. I was expecting two or three bullet points maybe, right? And instead, she wrote me this email that was like, da 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 yeah. And I looked at it, and I called my co-author, and I said, we're not done. We, we got to do another one. We're not done. Yeah, yeah. And, but for me, it was such a moment of humility 
because here I was so excited and so joyful about this topic of Heavenly Mother, but I have three daughters. And yeah. in my myopic vision, it had not mm. even crossed my mind to do a boy's guide to Heavenly Mother. Mm. So think about that. Yeah. I am deeply embroiled in this world. I'm up to mm -hmm. my eyeballs in thinking about this and working on this and researching this and producing things on it. And I still, still am human. Yeah. And still, yeah. like that would have been a big mess up. It would have been a big yeah. mess up to not think that Heavenly Mother matters to her sons as well. Right. So right. when I think about, you know, all the things that sometimes I'd like to be seen and done differently, I just think about myself and mm -hmm. about how close I came to messing up because I was not aware. Yeah. Yeah. And so in my world, I just think there's so much room for grace to, to say we're doing our best and yeah. all of us bring different levels of awareness to the table. And even, even if you think you're bringing in a high level, there's still all things that were my, yeah. that were, all of us are myopic about something. Yeah. We all have blind spots for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. tell everybody too, um, how they could possibly get your presentation that you gave at Restore. Cause I think that's out now. So how can Already, someone listen to that? Um, so Faith Matters generously is giving access to all of those talks digitally for free. Okay. So last year, I know that they charge for people to have access who couldn't come. This mm -hmm. year, they're able to manage the finances that they're able to literally give those talks away. It was two days that were beautiful yeah. and inspiring and made me want to be a better Christian. Yeah, I came back yeah. to my home ward inspired that I want to do better. Yeah. And so if someone is looking for that sort of inspiration, um, then I would recommend uh, listening to those. I'm sure they have it pieced out into different talks. It's not just like eight hours running, but you can yeah. just yeah. size, size formats. Yeah. So I'm sure it's on Faith and Matters website whenever whenever they actually get them posted. Okay. I, actually. Right. I didn't know, I'll tell everybody I know if they're available. But okay, I'll see if I can find that link and make sure I put that in there then because that would be great. Um, there because there were a lot of good talks. There were there were some really fun talks there, and I loved Peter Enns. I love Peter Enns and Lisa Miller, and there's just so many really great things that were. Peter Enns, he's there, the person so. who spoke about nature, right? Yeah, he was talking about um, Paul and the little hemisphere and like a snow globe and and how that was his world and that was all that he knew, but we need to branch out because now we have telescopes and yeah, 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 yeah that was. Really and you know fun. what? My co-author went up to him afterwards and said, you never once mentioned that Heavenly Mother is a God or that we have Heavenly parents. Oh, so I think he's perfectly brilliant and yeah. I loved his talk and yet he left out Heavenly Mother. Yeah. And yeah. so that's exactly, and I'm not trying to pick on him at all. I'm just making yeah. like, we all are myopic in some way. Yeah, right? exactly. So exactly. I think that having this understanding of grace to say, we're working on it. We're working yeah. on it. Yeah. Any movement forward is good. Yeah. Absolutely. So, will but you go get your kids? Enjoy Portland. Forward is good. I would also yeah. say any kindness is good. Yeah. Right. And so when it's not maybe as forward as what someone would want it to look like or reflect like, like any step is good, but any kindness is good. Like oh, we, absolutely. Can, we can create that kindness regardless of whether or not the steps are there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That should come innately, but it doesn't always. 
All right. Well, thank you very much. We have we still have grandkids up there in Portland, and so we're yeah. familiar with all the weather and all the rain. And we yeah. live most of our most of our married life was right there in Oregon and Washington. So well, it's beautiful you're living there, girl. It's beautiful. We love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking time out of your crazy, crazy day and have a great Thanksgiving. Absolutely. You too. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh my gosh. You, I will put a link on there so that you can enjoy um, MacArthur's presentation that she gave at the Restore Conference. And, um, and I think what you will enjoy about it is it isn't necessarily um, specific to the LDS religion. I think she's, she's specifically talking about a mother in heaven and the glory and the joy of, of teaching our children, especially. Um, and I love that she pointed out that it's not just something that we're going to teach our daughters, but it's also important for our sons to also recognize that there is a female deity that was part of the creation. And I think probably even, even I bet if we were to even to pull out, um, the proclamation to the world, the family, I bet that there were be a lot of men and boys that didn't even put those two things together. So to even have that um, highlighted at a family home evening, there's an idea, folks, for those of you that practice that. Um, so there's a, a great idea. Let's start talking about this a little bit more and maybe through uh, MacArthur and some of the other women that this will become more a topic of conversation, even more over the pulpit at conference. That would be really great. So anyway, thank you for joining me today. I hope you all have a great holiday with your family, whatever that means, friends, family, whoever you consider your family and friends. I hope that it's an enjoyable um, holiday for all of you. And thanks for joining me on She Became Visible today. Uh, you won't see me next week, but the week after. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me today on She Became Visible. Join me each week as my guests and I explore the path of womanhood and tell all our stories. We'll talk about finding the courage to be ourselves and motivate each other to be everything that we're capable of and meant to be, no matter what happens around us. Please like, share, and subscribe, and don't forget to donate at shebecamevisible.org.